we've been in a series called Renewed for Mission. And so the last couple of weeks, we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about the goal of God's mission. Week one, we talked about the thread of God, that from Genesis to Revelation, um, he is making his name known among the nations. And then in week two, we talked about the purpose of missions. The purpose of missions is not a better strategy. It's not for our glory, but it is for the glory of God, that the missions exist around the world because worship doesn't. And then last week, we talked about the reality of the need for Jesus, that there are over 2 billion people in the world who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And no one will hear the name of Jesus unless the church is sent. And today, we make a shift to more of the practical uh, as we talk about what does it look like to live on mission in our daily lives. Um, and so, I want you to go with me, if you have a Bible, to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 23, 1 Corinthians 9. It'll be on the screen as well. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So I want to do a little exercise with you, um, play a little game, if you will. So I'm going to do something up here, and I want to see if you can follow along with me. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. And doesn't a good slow clap just really make you happy? Is that just me? Um, okay, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to change it up. Let's see if you can follow along. What happened? You couldn't do that? Some of you just don't have any kind of rhythm. So the question is, why could you do the first one and not the second one? Because the second one didn't make any sense, right? That was dumb. That was foolish. But the first one had rhythm. And Contrary to popular belief, we all have some kind of rhythm, some of us more than others. Like you've seen my wife up here. This is why I'm talking, right? Because I don't have any rhythm. But we all have a rhythm in the way in, the way in which we live our lives. Think about it. We have a rhythm in the way in which we live our lives, the places we go, the things we do, the places we like to eat, the people we talk to, the things or TV shows that we watch um, on TV, we all have a rhythm in which we live life. So the question I want to ask today is, does your rhythm of life match the rhythm of God? That all throughout scripture, God has a rhythm. If you pay attention, you'll see it. You'll see the threads of how he works, the way in which he moves, the things he cares about. So when we live our lives, does the rhythm in which we live match the rhythm of God. Another way to say it, maybe a more simpler way, is 
What is the mission of your life? What's the goal of your life? Is the mission of your life comfort? Is it security? What is the mission of your life? Is it social status that you would be respected and well thought of? And does that mission match God's mission? We've been talking about this the last few weeks of what mission is. What is the mission of God? And his mission is to fill the earth with worshipers. So what does it look like when our mission and our rhythm matches God's rhythm? And so here's the plan for today. I want to show you six rhythms of God, six ways in which we see God move in Scripture that consists from Genesis to Revelation. And my hope, um, you know, when I was a young minister, I'm still very young, um, but I, I was a youth minister, you know, 12 years ago, and I was a college minister, and now I, I work as an associate pastor. And when I was 19 and I had my first job in ministry, a mentor used to say to me all the time, uh, ministry or missions is an overflow of the heart. It's an overflow of the heart. So my hope today is that God would stir our, the affections of our hearts, that we would care about the things he cares about, and we would love the things he loves. And so I hope that these six rhythms grab us. And we say, yes, I want to be a part of that. The first rhythm that we see, and there will be some slides on the screen that make it easy for you to follow along. The first rhythm of God that we see, and it's one that we've been talking about, is glory. That all throughout scripture, God is zealous for his glory. From Genesis to Revelation, God is zealous for worship, for his name to be proclaimed. It's all over the Bible. I mean, think about um, one of the most well-known scriptures in our Bible, the Ten Commandments. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, that word jealous can be translated to the word zealous or zeal. And what is God zealous about? His glory. So in one of the pillar instructions that God gives to his people is what? That God is zealous for his own glory. So don't worship other gods. They're not worthy of praise. We have a jealous God. And he not only desires glory, but he deserves it. Now, I wonder, the last few weeks that we have been talking about the glory of God, and I talk about how God is jealous and zealous for his glory, if there are some of you in the room who might recoil at that, where you say, really? God just wants his glory? It's wrong for anybody to demand or desire their own glory, to be jealous for their own worship. We are repulsed by people like that. I know I am. Like, if I walked up here and I just started talking about myself, and I told you stories, probably made up, of how I had it all figured out. And I talked about the successes of my life. And I looked at you and I said, you're a bunch of failures. You should be more like me. You should worship me. What would be your response to that? You'd probably start throwing your chairs at me, right? Because that's not okay. So if it's not okay for me to do that, why is it okay for God to do that? Is God selfish for demanding and desiring his own glory? And if you struggle with this idea, 
of God demanding and, desire, and desiring his own glory, I would ask you one question, okay? Who else would you have us worship? You? No. Who else would you have us worship? If you needed heart surgery, would you call me? No, I was terrible at operation, right? You wouldn't call me. You would call a heart surgeon, right? If you need, if you're looking for satisfaction and salvation, there's only one place you can go, God. And think about this, follow me. If he knows, if he knows that your salvation, joy, and satisfaction can only come from him, then would it be evil for him not to command you to worship him? Like if he knows that about himself, if he knows worshiping him is the place, the reason you were created and where you will find salvation and satisfaction and joy, would it be evil for him to command us not to worship him? I think it would. There is nothing, in, there's nothing else that is better than God and he knows it. And he invites us in that we would know it too. And so let me ask you this question. Whose glory are you living for? In your rhythm of life, whose glory are you living for? When you do the things you do, when you look at your schedule and how your week is filled, why do you do the things you do? The activities that fill your week, the thing you, things you watch on TV, the people you talk to, the things you spend your money on, the way you treat others, whose glory motivates you? Your own or the glory of God? Because once you taste and see the satisfaction and joy that comes from worshiping him, then joining him in his mission isn't work. It's just normal life. But if you live for your own life, for your own glory, then you will waste your life. You will. You will waste your life. But to live in a rhythm that reflects the glory of God promises joy. And so that's the first rhythm. The second rhythm is community. Community, that God has a rhythm of relationship with both himself and with us. Genesis 1, 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so here in Genesis 1, we get the first preview, the first um, understanding of what it means to have a triune God, that he says, let us make man in our image. So think about this, follow this. They agree, God, the Trinity, agreed to make humanity in their image, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. So in 1 John 4, 8, when it says that God is love, you familiar with that text? He says God is love. That is not an action statement. That is a statement about the character of God, that God within himself is unending love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit perfectly loving one another. Each one knows and loves one another unconditionally. And they are each consistently, constantly glorifying one another. And because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another, think about it, God is infinitely and profoundly happy. God is always happy. He always has joy living in this consistent, constant relationship of love. Think about it. It's the same for us. If you find someone that you adore, that you just love, that you would do anything for, and you discover that that person loves you in the same way, 
Would that make you happy? Yes, of course it would. That is what God has been enjoying for eternity. It is what he has been enjoying for eternity. And he looks at us and he invites us to enjoy that same relationship. That we would have a rhythm in our lives of experiencing the hope and joy of being known, of being loved, both by God and with one another. That's why the only thing we do here is this gathering and home groups. Like we don't have a bunch of classes, we don't have a bunch of events, because we were created to worship God and to love and fellowship with one another. Here's the deal. You don't have the tools to follow Christ alone. You don't. God did not give them to you. You are unable to live a life of worship alone. We need one another. He has wired you to belong to community. So the question I have for you is, do you give people, do you live a life of rhythm in such a way where you give others a glimpse of gospel community? Third, the third rhythm we see in scripture is love. Now, the word love has been watered down in our culture. You know this. So I want to be clear here. No one, and I mean no one, has loved you like God has. And no one will ever love you like God will. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, it broke us. Broke us. All of us. That humanity is selfish, we are foolish, we are mean, we are angry, and we are destructive. And despite that, God came from heaven, put on flesh, and walked among us. And sinful people rejected him. They didn't want him. They beat him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and nailed him to a cross. And he still loved them. He looked at that crowd and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a love that sacrifices, a love that is faithful, a love that never fails. I mean, just listen to the words in Romans 8.38 that Paul says. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He lives in a rhythm of love. And so, does our rhythm match that rhythm? When you do the things you do, when you fill your schedule, is it motivated by the love of Jesus? Does your love sacrifice for others? Is your love faithful? Like, take a second, even close your eyes if you want to, but take a second and think about those in your neighborhood, those in our city. Think about the unreached who will be born, live, and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus those that have no idea that Jesus has suffered and died for them. Do you truly love them? Do you want them to know? Will you do anything to tell them of the love of Christ? Does your heart grieve at the reality that they don't know? And does it explode with joy at just the possibility that they would know the love of Jesus? My prayer for us is that we would be a people that live in that rhythm. Our heart breaks that they don't know him and our heart explodes at the thought that they might. The next, First um, uh, John 4, 7 says, beloved, let us love one another. Loved ones, love. 
that the most natural thing for someone who has known and experienced the love of God is to do what? Love. Love. The fourth rhythm is justice. Look, this is actually a pretty simple rhythm, right? Like, the world is bad. Would you agree with that? Yeah. If I said the world is bad, you would say, yes, the world is bad. If I said human trafficking is bad, you would say, yes, Colton, I agree that that's bad. If I said the poor that are suffering, that's a bad thing, you would say, yes, that's bad. And even if I said, look, you've done some bad things, you would say, yes, I have done some bad things. More times than not, we can look at something and we can agree that that's bad, that there is an injustice there. And all the bad things of the world can be boiled down to one thing, sin. Sin is the source of all injustice. And the story of the Bible is God doing what? He is defeating sin and restoring the hurt, restoring the broken. He is moving people from death to life, from darkness to light. And at the cross, we see the perfect combination of God's love and God's justice, that God loved us so much that he would send his son to die on the cross. But man, also that he hates the injustice of sin so much that he would send his son to die on the cross. At the end of all things, God will have justice with each person on the globe. He will. He will have justice with each person on the globe. Either their sin will fall on Christ on the cross, that they will find forgiveness and hope and joy and salvation on the cross as Jesus looks at them and calls them, as God looks at them and calls them innocent based on the blood of Jesus. But if a person has not repented and does not have faith in Christ, they will be separated. They will be judged. And they will see the punishment of God. But the invitation for us who know him, it's not only for us to enjoy him through worship, but it's also to join his mission in fighting the injustice of sin. That we join God in the mission to bring justice to the world, to free people from Sin, that fight can manifest itself in many different ways, whether that's fighting the poor or destroying human trafficking, loving the fatherless. But the greatest way and the best way to fight injustice in this world, you know what that is? It's proclaiming the love of Christ to those who don't know him. Sharing life with them with humility and grace. And I'm convinced that the greatest injustice of this world is the reality that there are people in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Are you kidding me? That's not right. And as ambassadors of Christ, we join God in his rhythm to bring justice to an unjust world by showing them the love of Christ. So we practice, we feed the poor, we free the slave, we speak out against the wrong in the world, we go to the unreached, we help those who suffer from the injustice of sin. Why? Man, because God loves them so much and he hates what sin has done. We continue the work that Christ has begun, the defeat of sin and the destruction that, is bring, that it brings, and we show people the freedom that is found in Christ. The fifth rhythm that we see is redemption. Redemption is this idea that you have been brought out of slavery and you have been renewed, that all throughout the scriptures you can see God's plan unfold to bring about the redemption of his people. Think about it. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joshua, to Moses, to David, to Ezekiel, they all lead to a king. They all lead to a king. 
King Jesus who would shed his blood to purchase our lives and make us into something new. Think about it. We now live, literally, in a new rhythm of life because of Christ. And so not only has God redeemed our status before him from death to life, from broken to restored, not only has he redeemed our status before him, but he has also redeemed the way in which we live our lives. Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So what does it look like to live in a rhythm of a redeemed person? I think Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark 8.34 is helpful here. He says, calling to his crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, listen to these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so the heart of the saved person, the believer, is to display a denying of yourself and a taking up of your cross. So, in every believer, there is a denied self and a new self. And Jesus says that the denied self must take up their cross. The denied self must be crucified. This means that that part of your life that wants to enjoy things other than Christ, the part of you that wants to worship other things and reject God or to be apathetic about the things of God, the new self looks at that old self and says, no, you don't belong here. You're dead. You're crucified. The new self looks at the old self and says, no, I have been made new. I have been redeemed. And so in Mark 8, 35, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will, sa will save it. This is the description of the selves, that one self aims to save its life in this world. That self loves this world and wants to enjoy this world above Christ. It enjoys its comforts and its riches above all else. All else. That's the self that must be crucified and killed. And the other self that would lose his life in order to save it, this self experiences Jesus and his gospel as more valuable, more satisfying, and better than anything else, that he is worthy of our worship. So what does it look like to live in a rhythm of redemption, where your life is to display the worthiness of Christ? Another way to ask it is, do you live just like the world lives? Does your life look no different than the world's? Because let me tell you something, the last thing your neighbor needs the last thing that people in this city need and the last thing that the nations need, the last thing that they need is a cheap, deluded version of the gospel. That is the last thing that they need. If you profess that you are a Christian, but you look just like the rest of the world, then have you really tasted and seen the goodness of God? Do you really know how good he is? That he has brought people from death to life. Like, do you live a life in a life in a rhythm that would say, my God has all power. His gospel is better than anything else. Do you actually believe in the grace 
and hope of Jesus. Man, then does your life display that? Do you match God's rhythm where he says, I have come to redeem you, to, to restore the broken, to make you new, to give you joy, to give you hope? And so, man, who are we if we're not the people who say, look, look at how good he is. Look at how much better he is. And why are we wasting our lives? Because we're afraid of what people may think. Why are we so bored? Do we live a life that really shows the redemption of Christ? And the last rhythm is that we have a sending God. All throughout Scripture, God is sending people. If you think about all the major characters of the Bible, what is one thing that they have in common? There's probably many things, but one thing is that they were all given a task and sent out to do that task. Abraham is sent away from his country. Moses is sent to speak with Pharaoh. He's like, man, I can't talk. Jesus, God says, okay, I'll be your mouthpiece. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, not once, but twice. Jesus was sent to us. In John 20, 21, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. Jesus sends out his disciples. The church at Antioch sends Paul. Paul sends out Timothy that all throughout the Bible we see a sending God. We are not meant to be spectators. Where we do a bunch of religious activity void of kingdom productivity. God has sent us out with a purpose to make disciples. This is why we talk about multiplication so much here at Renewal. Because this is what we see in scripture. Man, so many times over the last a couple years, I have sat with home group leaders or even home group members, and there's this fear, this grieving about the f- multiplication, the reality of, of two group, one group becoming two, because God does a work with you, and he brings people into your home groups, and you grow in your friendships, you learn to trust Jesus together, and it's, it's like clockwork. As soon as that happens, it's time to multiply. And here's what I tell people about that process. There is a space to grieve multiplication. There's a space to grieve that. That's okay. You love those friendships. They breathe life into you. It's okay to be sad about that. But we don't get comfortable here. God has called us into something more. He's called us to make disciples. So we multiply so that those who don't know the love of Christ can have the space, literally, the space in a room to experience what you have experienced. To be a disciple of Christ is to make disciples of Christ. This means that when we go, we actually have to share the word of Christ to those who don't know him. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To be a witness is to verbally proclaim Truth to verbally share the story of Christ. There's an old quote that I've heard used several times in my life, and the sentiment is good, uh, but the quote is this, and I don't know if you've heard it or not, but preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. While that's cute, that is a load of baloney, okay? Just saying, well, I try to be a good person, or I witness with the way I live my life, honestly isn't good enough. We don't see that in Scripture. Well, I just showed people Jesus by being nice to them or being kind to them. Man, if that was all that was required to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, then that would be awesome. 
And I know a ton of people who don't submit to the authority of Christ who are nice people. But being nice isn't witnessing. The word for witnessing here in Acts 1.8, it's the word matiras. It's where we get the word martyr. Think about it. Think, think about this moment. Jesus says these words to these early disciples. Be a witness. Be a martyr. And literally, 10, of the, 10 out of the 11 of them died a martyr's death. And John was exiled to an island. And they weren't martyred because they lived nice and kind lives. They weren't. They died because they spoke the gospel. They were zealous about the glory of God. Does your rhythm match God's rhythm? Do you take seriously the call to be sent out? And here's where I tend to get pushback every time I talk about this. People say, well, Colton, that sounds awesome, and I agree with you, but man, I have so much going on. We are so stinking busy. You feel that? I have a job, I have responsibilities at home, my kids have a ton of activities that I need to take them to and from and be present at. And here's what I would graciously say to you. So many times, we try to fit the mission of God into our busy lives. And we have a couple of boxes that we try to squeeze that into, right? I've got Sunday morning, and I've got maybe once, maybe twice during the week. This is kind of what it looks like. I've got a slide for this, um, if you want to go to that next one. That we've got our life, and then we've got all these things that come out of that life, all the things that we do, and we try to add on the mission of God. That doesn't work. Where you come to a sermon like this, and you feel guilty because you haven't made disciples. You feel guilty because you're not living in any of these rhythms because you're trying to fit it into your busy schedule and you just don't have time for it. So many of us are exhaust, exhausted because we think, of, we think the mission of God is something that we have to fit in to our schedule. Well, I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to go to a small group. I'm supposed to share my faith, but I just don't have time for those things. We think of the mission of God as something extra in our lives. But if your rhythm matches God's rhythm, then you don't have to find time to be on mission. Think about it. If your rhythm, those six rhythms, matches God's rhythm, then you're not going to have to find time to do it. Your life will be infused with the gospel because there's nothing else that you would do. There's no other desire for you to, to motivate your schedule. You don't have to change around your schedule a ton. You literally learn how to live in a rhythm within that schedule. This is what Paul models for us in 1 Corinthians. When he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant all, that I might win more of them. To, become, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. And he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And he says, To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all people, that by all means I might Save some. Paul, who models better than anyone these six rhythms, he uses all the experiences. Think about your life. All the experiences you have. All the people that you meet. All the things that you know. The things that God has taught you. Paul takes every experience he has. He puts it on the table and says, God, use it. He knows what it's like to be a Jew. He knows what it's like to be a Gentile. He knows what it's like to be weak. And so he positions himself as one of them. 
and he speaks kindly to them. He speaks with grace, and he speaks with truth. And I love verse 23. Why did he intentionally aim to meet people where they were at? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. He says, for the sake of the gospel, so they might experience the blessings of the coming death and resurrections, resurrection of Christ. His interaction with others has one aim and one goal, that they might experience the hope and grace of Jesus. So you might ask the question, cool, great theory. What does that practically look like? Okay, a lot of you are type A type personalities and you wanna know the details. Well, how does this play out in our daily life? It's interesting, our God has actually made a way in the normal rhythms of culture to live on mission every day. With those six rhythms displaying to those around us, there are five ways that we can actively be in a rhythm of mission with people. And so if you'll go to that next slide, next one. Okay, five ways. The first one is to listen. So living a life as mission, living in the rhythm of God, the first way to be on mission is to say, am I listening to people? Are you listening to the people around you? Like when you think about those in your neighborhood, even those in your own home, like when you think about the people around you in your workplace, at your school, man, are you listening to what they're saying? Do you know the things that they care about? Do you know their frustrations, their joys? And do you actually respond with the gospel when you talk to them? Or do you just treat them like they're just anybody else? Or that you don't have this gospel on the tip of your tongue, tell them with confidence, yeah, man, I know that things are hard, but man, let me tell you how good Jesus is. You can't be ashamed of this. You know, in Acts, um, they never prayed for security. They never prayed for more money. You know what they prayed for more than anything else? Boldness. They prayed for boldness because they knew the temptations of our heart is to not share because we're fearful or we're afraid that we might be thought of a certain way. So you know what they did? They prayed for boldness. They didn't pray for protection. They prayed that God would give them boldness because they knew that we need it. We need help. So are you listening to the people around you? Do you know their needs? Uh, the second one is celebrations, right? We all celebrate something. And honestly, Christians should be the most celebratory people on the planet. Like, it is crazy to me that the world thinks we're boring, right? It's just crazy. We should be the most celebratory people on the planet, and we don't need to get trashed in order to celebrate. We don't need the things of this world to have joy because we already have it in Jesus. And so do we give people a glimpse of Jesus, of the gospel in our celebrations? How many of you have a birthday? Raise your hand. Oh, cool, me too, yeah. Do you need to add your birthday to your schedule? No, you don't. It's part of a normal rhythm of life. Do your kids have birthday? Yes. Do you have graduations? Several of you just did. Do you have anniversaries? Like, there's so many things. Celebration is already weaved into our culture. To, to gather people around in your backyard and to grill, to invite people over for a meal, Right? To share a meal together in a restaurant, like celebration, this idea of enjoying one another is already weaved into our culture. So, man, what are you doing with those conversations when people are with you? It's not something you need to add to your schedule. What do you do with people when they are 
with you. The third is to eat. How many of you eat? Anybody eat in here? So I heard amens uh, in there. So some of you, you know, if you eat seven meals, um, I mean, seven times, there's seven days in a week. So if you eat every meal, that's 21 meals. And I'm assuming the amens are more like 25 to 26. Um, So, but you all eat. Eating is something that you do not need to add to your schedule. You already do it. So what if you took three to five of those meals and said, with these three to five meals, I'm not going to eat them alone, right? I'm I'm going to be intentional with these moments to really display the rhythms rhythms of God with people in my life. It's not something you need to add. You're already going to eat. You're just being more intentional about it. The next one is to bless. Man, imagine, what if every week you said, I'm going to bless someone by words, by actions, man, in some way, I'm going to bless three to five people each week. What if a neighborhood did that? What if one street in a neighborhood all said, we're going to bless each other constantly and consistently throughout this week? Man, they're right there. Would that change the way that neighborhood thinks about God? Would that change their perspective from looking at their own needs to the needs of others? Man, what if you modeled what it looked like to bless? And the fifth one is to play. How many of you have a hobby? You know, so many times in a, in a sermon like this, our response is to stop doing something so that we can fit the mission of God into our schedule, right? Like, well, I do a lot of that, so maybe if I just stop that and I'll just make more disciples. And, and you know, some of you husbands or wives are like, yeah, I wish they would stop doing that. I wish they would stop playing so much golf. But that's not what I'm talking about here. But it's, it's the reality that so many times, we, because we think the mission is something additional in our lives, we think I need to subtract something in order to add in the mission of God. But what if you just played differently? What if when you went golfing, or whenever you play, like me, disc golf, or whenever you, I don't know, watch a sports game, man, you are intentional with that time? What if in your play, you do the things that you love that aren't bad things, you invited others, neighbors, Man, people from work that don't know Jesus. Man, you, you found a way to be intentional with that time. You don't have to subtract that in order to add to God. You just need to live in an actual rhythm of mission where the needs of the world is, and you're thinking about them, because you want to live for the glory of God, because you want to give people a glimpse of gospel community, because you love them, because you see the injustice of sin and the, way, the places that it's taking the people in this world, because you live a redeemed life and because you are sent by God, it is natural for us to invite others into our lives to display that. Does that make sense? It's a rhythm that as we live a life in rhythm, we are able to experience the grace of God. I love um, this text in Philemon 1.6, and I want to end with this. He tells the church, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I love that. See, the incredible thing here is that the sharing of your faith is more than just a command from Jesus, but it is also a way in which we are able to fully experience the goodness of Christ. Like, as you share your faith, you get to understand Jesus more that you get to experience him more. That as we share, he reminds us of who he is. We get to experience that he has created us to know him in relationship, that he 
loves us, that as we share, he reminds us that you stand free in righteousness. You are blameless. You have hope. As we share, he reminds us of these things. And he helps us believe them as we talk about them. It's such a cool thing. And my hope for us this morning, man, it's not that you have to change a bunch of things about your life, but you have to be transformed from the inside out. Ministry, missions, is an overflow of the heart. So what does your heart beat fast for? The things of God are the things for yourself.